Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to a strength and conditioning coach at the Aspire Academy and Director of Proformance Strength and Conditioning, James Baker. tuned in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today I'm bringing you James Baker, who has become a good friend of mine over the last few years. And he's been on the list for a long time, but with the conferences coming up that James runs, the uh, Child to Champion conferences, which we speak about in this episode, it was prime to uh, to get James on at this time. So in this episode, for all those who work in youth development, athlete development, long-term athlete development, whatever it may be, people under 21 or under 18, um, this will be an absolute brilliant episode for you to listen to. So in this episode, myself and James first discuss his transition to Aspire. Um, not a traditional Aspire hire, given that he's not from an institute or anything like that, XPE teacher, as again, we go into in this episode. His transition to Aspire from his high school that he was working as a, as a PE teacher at and that transition which is a really interesting one. Then we also discuss monitoring growth and maturation and some of the stuff he's doing at Aspire, um, long-term athlete development pathways, the evolution of the pathways across of the pathway across different stages and then we finish off like I said with some chat around child to champion how that came about what the vision was behind it and uh, the three conferences that they're running uh, this year uh, what they look like and uh, what people can potentially learn from attending those conferences so really looking forward to bringing this episode it's one that I'm sure you'll love this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Kitman Labs. So Kitman Labs partners with leading sports teams to help them consistently achieve the highest levels of performance by increasing the impact of their data. So over 200 teams across the globe rely on Kitman Labs' performance intelligence platform to quantify the cost of performance and injury and receive the right insights at the right time. Through unique outcome-driven analytics and the most advanced athlete management system, teams can align their organizations around a shared view of what it takes to drive performance and health and move at the speed of sport to adjust and continuously improve. If you want to know more about Kitman Labs, head over to www.win.kitmanlabs.com forward slash impact. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by I Measure You. So used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field, IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. So iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident, which includes ultra high G capabilities to quantify high impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer battery life to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. I Measure You, now part of Vicon, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defense and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about I Measure You, head over to their website, imeasureyou.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at imeasureyou. So without further ado, over to the episode with James Baker. 
Thanks for tuning into the Pace Performance Podcast. So this morning, I am delighted to welcome James Baker, a longtime member of the potential podcast list. So thank you for coming on and and uh, agreeing to uh, to line it up. And thank you for fitting me into your busy schedule. So welcome to the podcast, mate. Thanks, Rob. Uh, as you say, we've, we've tried to get this lined up for a while, so it's great to finally uh, manage to sit down and get some time to chat and do what we've been aiming to do. Absolutely. So anyone that doesn't know who you are, so you're a strength and conditioning coach and sports science leader Aspire, and also wear your other hat or many other hats for performance. Do you just want to give us a bit of a background on what happened pre-Aspire, your kind of coming into the industry, and then education-wise and all that, all the good stuff? Yeah, sure. Uh, so education-wise takes me back now to finishing up my degree, sort of 2006. I did sport and exercise science like many others. Uh, strength and conditioning wasn't a degree option at that point until a few years later. Um, and I kind of bumbled around a bit after university, did some traveling, spent some time in different parts of the world, which was uh, was really, uh, really cool. Uh, and through that sort of time, sort of figured out that strength and conditioning was a path I was going to take when I, when I got back to the UK and sort of set about in 2008 starting uh, the UKCA accreditation process, um, did some personal training stuff around that time as well to sort of make ends meet. And so, yeah, just sort of threw myself into the industry from there, really. And and at that point, I was I was fortunate to come across uh, Ed Archer, who does a, a lot of work with the UKCA and runs a, a company now called the Athlete Academy. And I, I spent some uh, two to three years working with Ed part-time first of all and then he employed me full-time um at the and during that period there was also um an internship with bristol rugby club so experience there in professional rugby with championship when they were fighting for promotion against exeter that that season so that was uh, an interesting time to to be around that setup um but it was the there was an option there to sort of stay on front of the season, but I opted to to go and work for Ed full time with his with his athlete academy and and our and it was essentially a startup at that point. It was just me and him, and we were in a, a little office at the the back of uh, the King's Home Stadium at Gloucester Rugby, and uh, we were basically working to try and build the business from the bottom up. in in, in and it was a, a purely youth strength and conditioning focused business and. That was sort of 2010, um, and the conversations we were having then is people were just, you know, really did not get the concept of what we were trying to do when we were speaking to schools, and they were like, "You, you do what type of training with 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 children?" And you know, bumping into all the all the usual sort of myths that you get. So, um, but through that process and and many cold calls to schools and various other places, we we got to a point where we'd set up um, twelve programs around Gloucestershire with different state schools, independent schools, and supporting the school sports uh, coordinators with gifted and talented days. Uh, so that was um, sort of the period through to about two thousand and twelve, um, and at that point, uh, just took a little bit of a, a redirect away and, and set up on my set up on my own uh, mainly for, for personal and family reasons we just had a little one and wanted to try and be around a little bit more for for the family and um, so set up performance as a an independent provider of 
strength and conditioning uh, services really primarily from a sort of personal training and and one-to-one basis with young athletes and we were running some camps for uh, young rugby players during uh, during the the summer holidays the the breaks and that was with a guy called Jack Adams who was a professional rugby player from Bristol Rugby so kind of using contacts we we kind of built up the this sort of camp process Um, and then it was one of the through that sort of time period some conversations started to happen with um St. Peter's School, which was one of the schools that we had the programs with, with the Athlete Academy. And I kind of pitched them this idea of what we could potentially set up as a strength and conditioning gifted and talented athlete pathway, if you like, to use a, a, a secondary school term that is banded around quite a bit. Um, so we we basically talked on and off for a while and the head of PE was keen to bring me in but he basically said look we we cannot do we cannot employ you as a strength and conditioning coach there's no state schools are employing strength and conditioning coaches and we, and we don't have the budget but would you consider training to be a PE teacher and I jumped at the chance I thought it was a, a great opportunity um, I could see some work-life balance in in that system with the the holiday time i at that point, I could see it. Uh, it wasn't as much of a reality as I as as I thought at times, but it was it was a, a great experience. So I, I trained to be a PE teacher then in 2013 to 2014, and then I was full time as a PE teacher slash strength and conditioning coach at at St Peter's. And the, the first year, that kind of was a the strength and conditioning was a small commitment, probably five hours a a fortnight, and then by the end of the time I left before I came to Aspire, that had grown to 40 hours of timetabled in curriculum strength and conditioning with, with 150 athletes. So a huge, uh, huge increase. Uh, but that's sort of, I guess, my journey through through up to the point where, where I have, have now moved to Aspire, where my, my current role is, as you said, a, a strength and conditioning coach and I'm one of the sports science leads um, that coordinates the sort of multidisciplinary team, uh, specifically for the track and field development program. Uh, but then I provide SNC support to senior sprints and hurdle groups and other groups when, as and when required. So we'd spoken before, and you'd mentioned and admitted that um, Alex Natera, who was at the Aspire Academy when you were when you were coming, said that you weren't a typical Aspire hire. Yes. So was that because of your kind of non-traditional route into S and C? What what was that? What yeah, was that? I, th- I think when Alex said that um, to me, I think it was because you know if you look at a lot of the guys that have been there um, and some that still are there, they're very much from institutes of sport, English Institute of Sport, Australian Institute of Sport, such as South Australian Sports Institute, New South Wales, those, those kind of places, um, and you know, to for them to hire, if you looked at my specific job title in St. Peter's, I was employed on a PE teacher's contract. And I think there was a leap of faith there with Alex, you know, really putting his neck on the line that I was the right person to, to take that job because I, I don't, all of the other people that have been through certainly weren't coming from PE teaching backgrounds. Um, so... That's what I think he meant by that, really. So, how did that how did that job come about? 
because it wasn't just an advert on. No. <laughs> it wasn't just an advert online. You 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 apply for it. You get the job. You, you get on the plane and and travel to Qatar. Not quite how it worked out, was it? No, no. It was um, it's it was funny how it happened. Um, so we brought Alex over for Charter Champion in 2017. He and I had been talking on and off for probably two years when he when he'd done the first podcast with you. I got, right. Okay. Where back then? Right. We we kind of, I jumped on some of the things he was talking about because uh, particularly around like the eccentric and isometric training aspect and through working with, a lot with Mike I was familiar with a lot of his methodology so I called Alex just to kind of pick up on those things and sort of build my knowledge around those areas for some of the kids that we were working with that were at a bit of a higher end of the spectrum um, and those com- that communication led to Alex coming to the UK after a while I did some stuff sort of present presenting the work we were doing at St Peter's to their SNC team via Skype so there was kind of like a an ongoing communication over a couple of years and then when he came to the UK he said um, on one of the evenings after I think it was the Saturday evening or something he just said look we've got a job would you mind advertising it to the people in the audience and at the time I didn't even really consider myself for the role I knew nothing about Qatar really beyond that that was where Aspire Academy was. Um, so I actually advertised the job to the audience at the Charter Champion and Alex had probably 10 people queuing up, speaking to him at the end of his talk while we were while we were tidying up and getting things ready to, to sort of drive back to Heathrow, drop him off and, and Mike as well. And it was when the three of us were in the car, having seen all these people kind of queuing up, chatting to him, I was like, so Alex, what, what's the deal with the job? What's what's this job at Aspire? And he's told me it was with track and field and that sort of piqued my interest. And then we kind of, it just went from there, really, the the discussion. he I don't think he'd considered me for the role and I hadn't considered the role. It was just through this conversation in the car that it was like, this could actually be a really good fit. Um, and then it was, yeah, it really went from there. And then it was just a tough sell to my missus to leave everything she'd known for, most of her life and, and take a jump out to the desert with uh, with me and the kids. Nice. So so previous guests I've had on the podcast, uh, Kelvin Giles been one that jumps to mind straight away. And it's normally the, no disrespect to these guys, but the older coaches who have come through that more traditional physical education system sure. who still hold that in such high regard of how it formed the basis of where they've got on to what they've gone on to do and where they've gone yeah. on to do it. Elvin been a great example. What do you think, what base do you think that gave you in terms of the actually learning how to teach in them years at, at St. Peter's versus, and that obviously set you in good stead for the Aspire Academy moving forward. Sure. Uh, I mean, I'd completely agree with what Calvin said and um, really, really had a huge positive impact on the way that I delivered strength and conditioning and, you know, working in that environment around teachers, uh, being mentored by teachers. There was a few sort of key things I think that, that, that did, um, you know, you come in as a strength and conditioning coach. I'd been accredited for three years at that point. Uh, so I think my technical knowledge was pretty good across things like speed, agility, strength, power, delivery, a good eye for movement competent coaching from a strength and conditioning point of view um and then you you step into a teaching environment 
where you're teaching 30 kids when previously I've been working with maybe, you know, anywhere between one and eight kids who were highly motivated, talented sports people that had a, a, you know, a goal in mind. And all of a sudden you're faced with 30 kids who have very different levels of ability, differing levels of engagement. uh, And, you know, your your basic strength and conditioning program is, you know, isn't, if you do it how you do it by the textbook, it's, it's not going to work. And it, it, it it's going to be work. chaos. It didn't work. <laughs> you know, yeah. and I, and I think I'd already, I'd already experienced that in some of my previous work with, you know, the athlete Academy with Ed, um, good example being, uh, we started a program at a school called Chosen Hill School in, in Gloucestershire. Um, we started out first week, there was 25 kids. Next week, there was 12. And then we were down to six. And we uh, and the delivery was very much focused around, you know, the technique of squatting and, and you know, all those fundamental movements that we, we would kind of work with. And it wasn't until I went in to teach PE or, or was trained to teach PE and challenged to look at the lesson in a in a different way. You know, how do you how do you set up a lesson to work with that many kids and make sure that they're all engaged and working? Um, you know, and and that your your less you have to through that teacher training process you have to develop your lesson plans. You have to have clear objectives and outcomes for each session, and the content needs to work towards those objectives. You know, in in line with with the curriculum, um, and then through that process you were observed constantly and where i was expecting to get sort of torn apart from a technical perspective of my technical knowledge a lot of what they were actually challenging me on was how i'd organized the lesson where people were working where i was taught where i was um teaching my teaching position was i moving around the classroom from one activity the next how long did it take me to transition from one thing to the next? Um, I remember delivering a lesson the one day, and it was very. I, I thought oh, that was a good one, good lesson. I got got all my activities in, and the guy observing me was like, "Did you know that kid over there was stood there for eight minutes and did nothing?" I was like, <laughs> "Really?" He was. They were like, "Yeah, he was waiting for you know eight minutes. You know, he just sort of was stood around. He didn't really do a lot." You know, it, it was when we were you were transitioning between activities, and, I, and it was it was like a really cold November morning. So the poor kid must have been freezing. Well, I and I obviously hadn't really detected how long it was because I was setting up my my playing spaces, and you know, he was like, "Look, you've you've got to get everything set early." You know, at the beginning of the lesson, know how you're going to move and transition. You don't want to take time out to do things like you know, reset up another playing area or a pitch or you know, regroup kids, you know, so they challenge you to look at organization in a, in a different way. And it's to keep activity levels high and keep kids engaged because when they, when you stop and it could even be like you just talking for too long, they talk about the pace and tempo of the lesson, organization transitions and all those things do really have a huge impact on, on how that session plays out. So what I sort of took away from that and that, you know, that was teaching, primarily traditional sports that one example was a was a rugby session i started to take that in then to to the the strength and conditioning practices and think about how i set the gym up 
you know, how do I set the gym up in terms of working spaces? Who works with who? You know, how do we introduce the lesson? How are we going to transition from one exercise to the other? And it could just be simple things like if you bring the equipment to the working spaces at the beginning of the lesson, you know, you say you need a, a dumbbell and a bench. Well, if you set that out at the beginning of the lesson and no kids have to move anywhere and walk across one another and grab all the dumbbells, then the flow of the session is a lot better. The behavior within the lesson is a lot better and, and you're much more likely to achieve your objectives. So that was, I guess that's really what I kind of took away from, from it was this, this real detail and thought around how you set up and deliver lessons and sort of playing them through in my head ahead of, ahead of time and thinking about how it was, how it was really going to flow and, as I say, minimizing downtime, although parts of that is, is, is essential at certain, certain points within a strength and conditioning program. We've had a couple of people on the podcast. One specifically recently was the guys at Millfield School. Yeah. And I'm, I'm just mentioning that because there may be listeners out there who are on a similar journey to you when the, you were at the Athlete Academy with, with Ed and thinking this is a, a really good route that James is mentioning that I'm going to become a PE teacher mm-hmm. and I'm going to get into school with S&C and yeah. then I'm going to rock it from there. And they may have listened to like youth development podcasts as well and, and think that may be a route that you're mentioning. Where are we at in the UK? And this is pretty briefly before we head on to the track development program stuff um, yeah. at Aspire. Where are we in terms of the UK where that could, that situation that you created at St. Peter's could be replicated? And I know there's things at Millfield and great work going in the private sector, but yeah. from a, in the public sector, um, mm. are we anywhere near that? like replication across the board or not I, as far as i'm i mean i've been away from the uk for two and a half years i mean i still speak to lots of, of people there and you know we're we're in a fortunate position at st peter's that that place has, that full-time position has carried on so there's been two people in that role since since i was in it but in state schools i th- i think that's going to continue to be pretty rare whilst the budget restrictions are in place from current government um i think it's moved it's definitely moved on there's lots of great work being done uh by people who are external to those schools but have seen the opportunity so for example i know ben drury at hartbury college and his students they they run some programs in in local schools with their master's students uh ed archer has a um the part that one of the schools that we started off with 10 years ago crypt school in gloucester as a they used to come to us once a week when we had a gym at king's home he's developed a working relationship with them over the past 10 years that he very much works in partnership with them now and he supports them as from an external uh basis so there's, there's really good work going on i still think the being full-time employed strength and conditioning coaches in a state school is, is, is possibly some way off. But I think there's, I know there are definitely a few people who I've spoken to over the last years who've gone a similar route as me. The difficulty is getting those places on the PE programs is, it's not easy. It's very, very competitive. And, you know, universities have kids on sports education programs, you know, undergrads that, you know, naturally kind of move on to those, to fill the majority of those 
PGCE places or school direct program places, and it, so it, it, it's quite it's quite difficult. Obviously, the independent sectors there's a lot more um, a lot more being advertised. I think most now in terms of you know they've got to keep up with their competitors on their circuits and their lo- the other local schools that are employing them. So there's a there's much bigger growth in that area. It's huge. What you know what we've seen in you know, five, five, six years in, in that space. Um, but there's always a few things which kind of, you know, really bother me ab- about the the imbalance of, of that and why I've always spoke so passionately, I guess, about that state school sector is, you know, only 7% of kids in our country are in independent schools. There's 93% of them that are in state schools there's some real talent there to be developed and supported. And, you know, there's, there's an inequality in that that doesn't sit particularly, sit particularly well with me. So, you know, always, always keen to see that, that state sector, um, you know, th- doing, doing a little bit better and get a bit better recognition. But, you know, as a, there are more jobs for sure in that area. There's, there's more opportunities for people that are, um, you know, willing to put themselves out to, to do stuff. You know, I, I started out doing stuff for free for St. Peter's even before, you know, we were there with the Athlete Academy. Um, so the, there's opportunities if you're willing to, if you're, if you're willing to, um, you know, put yourself, put yourself out there and, and give up some time and uh, earn, your, earn your stripes. I think it's uh, one thing that I think we're still yet to see um, in in any of those sectors, is there's even in the independent schools, those S and C roles are not looked at and and paid what they should be paid. They have a very very valuable skill set that adds a lot to a school, and we're still seeing salaries in and around sort of eighteen to twenty thousand pounds a year, which to me is, you know, for for what those people have the potential to bring and. You know, we come into contact with many strength and conditioning coaches through our conferences and events and, uh, you know, always impressed with the way that these coaches handle themselves and their work and their passion. Um, and then to think that that isn't really recognised financially, you know, long term we're going to lose really good people from the industry and that sector particularly, which has the potential to really, really positively impact so many young people. No, and that's that, that's a shame. But I'm sure you know that will improve as as our as the worth is is recognised in in different schools. And there are schools that obviously do pay really well, but there's a lot that are jumping on the bandwagon and and you know putting out you know what I would think is a below average salary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree. So just moving on to the track development program in your current role it'd be great to get a bit of an overview of what that role looks like with them guys i.e the the aims of why yeah. you're there in the first place yeah. um and then building that model or carrying on the model that was already in place before you got there and just be more in depth about that that role and what it looks like sure so I mean, the the aspire academy is a is a government funded project you know, with a view to the World Cup and other, you know, big sporting events. You know, World Cup will be here in 2022, but we've just had uh, Doha 2019 
World Athletics Championships in, in the stadium just up the road from where I am now. Um, so at the objective of the academy is to produce national level talent uh, across a, a range of sports. Obviously, my, my remit is within track and field and to develop track and field athletes for the, the Qatari Athletics Federation senior teams of the future. Um, and that, that starts out with a search for maybe some rough diamonds with some raw athletic potential. Um, and, and that at the youngest age groups, they have in many cases little to no experience of athletics, but they've shown some physical qualities that leads us, well, the talent identification team, the coaching team leads them to believe that, you know, they've got an opportunity to maybe do something within, within athletics. So when they arrive at Aspire, the, there's essentially two stages, two major stages to the path. We have the development program for track and field, which is development one to three, uh, grades seven, eight, and nine, 13 to uh, 12 to 15 years old. And then we have the performance stage of the pathway, which is sort of 16 years and, and beyond up to when they'll hopefully transition to the national team or another high performance environment. We've got a couple of athletes now out in the US college system um, doing very well. And, you know, hopefully that's a, a pathway that will continue to develop. And there's obviously some kids that don't and they go to other uh, industry and careers within within Qatar um, as they sort of transition away from the sport. So that's that's kind of the a rough overview of the pathway. Um, I've over the last two and a half years um, within that development program, working with some some really great coaches, uh, athletics coaches specifically, who are developing a essentially an athletics program to try and help the kids to learn to love the sport and engaging curriculum where they experience multiple events. They still do multi-sport activities, swimming, gymnastics, cycling, volleyball, all sorts uh, around the athletics program, plus a couple of strength and conditioning sessions in that week as well to sort of pick up the physical the physical levels that, that may be lacking um, from... I guess what they've done before, before Aspire, which the PE program and, and sports systems here in Qatar are, are not what we know back home. You know, the sports system is very much a developing system here and, and we're all part of trying to make that better. So between myself and one of the coaches, Martin Brockman, uh, another guy, Rudy Sopko, and then we've got a couple of other good guys, Brendan Tamo, um, Peter Skumal, um, and then... Uh, we sort of are shaping the, the development program. They do the technical side. And then I lead on the, the curriculum design for the strength and conditioning pathway, uh, supported by Chris Brandner, who I think you've had um, had yes. on the podcast before. In so the early we, days. So yeah. yeah. So we, we deliver, we try and, what I've tried to do with the framework working closely, particularly with Martin, who kind of led on that over the first two years, we built an S&C framework that tied into the technical development side, um, trying to, as they were learning the technical skills, we're bringing up the strength, power, and speed qualities, reactive strength qualities alongside that, that we've kind of identified are the, 
the key physical qualities that we need for them to perform well in in track and field and through that curriculum it's about understanding what skills do we need them to develop and what do they need to be able to do to be successful when they transition into the the performance level event group so they move from a a multi-event program where they do everything through to more event specific groups at 16 which is the other group i work with sprints and hurdles there's also a jumps group endurance group and a, and a throws group so where their their physical qualities skills sort of begin to shine through we then channel them towards those specific coaching groups where it, it can be a little bit more fine-tuned um, as well at a time when they're they're more mature at, from a from a growth and maturation perspective um and that they could cope with the rigors of a, a, a more a more specialized program, should we should that, we say. That, that's really interesting because in the chat I had with the guys at Millfield, that was almost been done on a a similar basis, but almost flipped around. So Alan, who was the athletics guy when it was athletics season, mm-hmm. he was speaking with the sports coaches, so rugby, for example seeing what the rugby guys were doing, what were they they were working on and use the track and field time to enhance them physical qualities so they could be a better rugby player yeah. or a better football player or whatever. Yeah. So, yeah, very yeah. similar approach, yeah. And I think that's the thing. Uh, that's smart use of uh, – smart use from them. You know, I know they, they do have some good – from what I understand, they've had some good track and field athletes at Millfield over the years. I've played, played against Millfield, taken teams to play against Millfield from rugby – a rugby perspective and you know they've always been very uh a very very strong outfit obviously with the the players that they the caliber of the players that they get there but yeah i mean that, that i would imagine their main emphasis is their rugby programs and, and hockey programs and football programs not saying track isn't important but yeah it's understanding what each of those components within a school curriculum can give you and the rotation around those different activities gives you opportunities to focus on you know other qualities that maybe you don't get if you're just doing one that well, we know that you don't get if you're only doing one sport and it all transfers it's looking at it as a big picture rather than people working in silos and not really appreciating the the overall development and and how those things things transfer and that was certainly something that we had at St. Peter's was that kind of mindset of we're all working together and all of these parts of the, the curriculum have have value. Um, but you, you need a special team of people that, that kind of works that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, when the, so when these guys transition into the performance group, yeah. what kind of qualities are you looking for for them to make that step up? What kind of, is it more general? Is it very specific? What does that look like? What kind of tests are you doing? How are you assessing their capabilities to move on to that? Uh, I mean, I could probably speak with most confidence around sort of the sprints and jumps groups. Mm -hmm. I don't think our understanding on the throws side is quite as as clear at the moment, but I think we've, we've historically there's been lots of data collected around sort of the sprints and jumpers by guys like Phil Graham Smith. Um, I can't believe he's got a mention. 
<laughs> I'm only joking. I'm only joking. <laughs> the, uh, I'll pick up my uh, my my paycheck from him on uh, yeah, what a on Sunday morning when we get back in. But you know, these guys have been collecting data out there, and obviously Phil's got lots of data looking back into over the last what, twenty years or so with British athletics. So I think we have a clearer idea around around those things because of because of that. Uh, what we what we didn't really have when I arrived was we knew what the top end looked like, but we didn't really have consistent data collection down into the development program to say see what that looked like at 12, 13, 14, 15 years old. Uh, so there's, I, I, won't, I maybe can't go into exact specifics around the top end, but um, the things that we're looking for now from a development perspective is reactive strength qualities, uh, relative power that we'd look at through a counter movement jump. We're looking at maximal, maximal velocity sprint um, and obviously all the, the segments within, within that. We use a, a 50 meter sprint and we, we measure that with a, with a larva egg and then we have an isometric test which we've used different ones we use an isometric squat, but we also, with the younger groups, we use an isometric leg press. This is something I've been playing with with the multidisciplinary team around the development uh, groups this year. So we, we've collected on the test that we use specifically for reactive strength. We use a 10-5 rebound jump. Um, it's a normal counter-movement jump, 50-meter sprint, and isometric leg press, and that gives us all the strengths, power, speed, qualities. Um, and then we're looking at the relationships between those metrics and, and performance. We can see that, you know, we need a, in a, in a 10, five, we're looking at, looking at total flight, total contact. We're looking at re an, an elite sort of number would be 4.0, um, total flight, total contact, the ratio there. Um, and, you know, we'd be looking at a jump height on that of somewhere 40 to 45 centimetres. Um, CMJ, we're looking for big relative power numbers, jump height in the development group. Our best guys are probably jumping up 50 to 55 centimetres, somewhere in that range. And we see relative power numbers up around the 70 watts per kilo mark. And we can see um, those things have a a strong relationship with the maximal velocity that they can hit. Um, so that, that for us is a, a sort of key metrics. The isometric leg press is, is, is something that is, is quite new to us and maybe a unique bit of kit compared to what's available in different, different parts of the world. Uh, we've collected probably 50 data sets on that now across those development groups. And again, you can see strong relationships with our with our CMJ power variables, they have a high output on that, that isometric leg press looking at peak force. Then they, they generally have a, a very good power output and the relationship with that with sprinting is, is, is very strong. So we're looking at, at those kind of numbers and metrics to identify which kids have those physical qualities that will, can be successful in, in the jump the jumps and the sprints groups because if we're looking 
if you're looking at a jumper, they're going to need to hit somewhere between somewhere around, well, over 10 meters per second um, in their approach. Uh, obviously, the sprinters, if you're going to be world class, you, you're going to need to get up around 11, 11 12 meters per second uh, if, you, if you're going to be successful in that. So we're looking for numbers that are, are, in, are in those those ranges. We've got a few boys you know, in our development groups, 14, 15, that are in the high nine to 10 meters per second. And we, we just had one lad who's, who's just just gone through that. So, you know, we're, we're seeing some physical qualities that we would want. And we think, we think we've got a clearer idea around what that looks like at a younger age now. And it's more, it's more about building a data set to be more and more confident with, with those numbers. So we're just going to take a very quick break before we get into part two with James. Hope you're enjoying part one. So over in part two, we discuss more on the monitoring growth and maturation topic. Then we move on to long-term athlete development pathways and evolution of the pathway as you move across the different stages. And then finish off with a little bit of a chat around Child to Champion, the conferences that, um, that James and Mike run, and where they are, what you can potentially learn from these and how that vision came around and what that looks like, how that's developed, etc, etc. But just before we do dive into part two, I want to say a big thanks to Hawking Dynamics for sponsoring this episode today. So Hawking Dynamics are the world leader in innovative force plate technology. Hawking takes a user-centric approach featuring a fully customized cloud-based software that allows users to easily digest and analyze complex force plate data. So the technology is constantly evolving, much like an app on anyone's iPhone or Android. They communicate with the user on a daily basis to make their system better and better. So in addition to all that, they also offer the most competitive price for bilateral force plates on the market. And they're the only force plate company offering a completely wireless system, which is obviously a huge bonus. So in April 2020, Hawking Dynamics are hosting an educational event in St. Louis, Missouri at the prestigious Maryville University. So this event is definitely not one to miss. So it's a full two-day experience headlined by speakers like Dr. Jason Lake, who's been on the podcast before from Chichester University, Eric Renahan, who is the head of sports performance for the St. Louis Blues, Daniel Hicker, who's head of sports performance for the San Jose Earthquakes, and Lauren Green from the University of California and their sports performance analyst. So these are the leaders of Forceplate Research and Technology. So to learn more about this event, head over to the Hawking Dynamics website, which is hawkingdynamics.com. And also sponsoring this episode today is Black Box Fitness. So Black Box Fitness are a sports performance equipment manufacturer based in Belfast in Northern Ireland. So if you are looking for a full gym fit out, if you're lucky enough to be looking for a full gym fit out or just want to add additional pieces to what you've already got, whether that be barbells, dumbbells, plates, maybe a new rack, some flooring, etc., etc. Have a little look at what Black Box Fitness can offer. So you can head to their website, which is blkboxfitness.com, or for a more informal view of what they do, head over to their Instagram because they've got some really cool images of some of the recent projects that they've run in Australia, in the UK, in Europe, etc. So head over to their Instagram, which is at blkboxfitness, and they're the same on Twitter. Just to move on. Yep. 
want to chat around monitoring growth and maturation. I know it's something we've spoke about offline yep. and there's maybe certain things that you can't dive too much into and that's absolutely fine. So feel free to dodge um, where need be. But just to get your view on that monitoring growth and maturation as a whole mm-hmm. and then some any uh, challenges that you've come to face either here or more generally at Aspire uh, and then we can dive into that if that's all right. Sure. So I've just been working on something with um, Joe Eisenman and, and Kevin Till, uh, a little sort of uh, commentary on growth of maturation, and, and we've all given some practical insights to that. So we've, we've just kind of worked through that process over the last couple of weeks, and hopefully that's something that will be out soon. Um, but one of the things Joe kind of pushed me to do was to kind of summarize it from a, from a practical perspective and what it takes to, to really implement this this well and, you know i kind of do it on reflection of what it's taken to do at st peter's in a in a secondary school where it was a very novel concept and then you know what it's taken to do here at aspire with uh, you know with with a few more bells and whistles at our, our disposal and i think it comes down to when you've you've got to have someone who's completely committed to the cause of of monitoring it and measuring it or a team of people and that's certainly there's some, there needs to be someone leading it to do it. That that collection of data then has to be very consistent, typically quarterly, um, and then it's it's really important that those uh, findings, data sets are then communicated with the coaches and anyone that's in contact with them, so they can they can you know begin to adapt and differentiate their their programs accordingly. Um, and I think then it's a, it's really a collaborative effort that follows that around program, curriculum design, management of workload, for, for those groups. And I think the, the challenge to that is that all of those kids, there's such there's such diversity in the the status of growth and maturation within within any one chronological age group. So if, even if you're dealing with all 13-year-olds, all 14-year-olds, under-14s, under-15s, you know, we're looking at the skeletal age data within our track and field development groups at Aspire. So we get, we're, we're fortunate that we get, or historically we've had wrist x-rays done and we get a bone age for them, chronological age, a predicted adult height from, from that bone scan. Within one, within each of the two development groups in the first year I was there, there was between the least and most mature, there was approximately six years difference. So the youngest one was about 11, had a bone age of 11 and the, and the, the most mature was 17 point something. Um, so talking a huge, huge range. And if you looked at them, one of them's got a beard and one of them... <laughs> One, one of them's about the size of my eight-year-old, so because uh, <laughs> he's a he's a big boy. But they're you know you're talking just huge differences, huge huge differences, and that that then is very challenging to plan for, or you know in 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 other in other ways it can cause problems because. Of, you know the coaches are looking for the best athletes and when you when you look at what the best athlete is in track and field what is it it's the the strongest fastest most most powerful kid but 
that doesn't mean they're going to be the most powerful, the strongest or the fastest in five or six years' time. But how do you keep kids in a sport which needs to be, you know, you need to be really explosive and quick when you're just not physically developed there yet and you're against boys that are, you know, imp- very impressive, you know, specimens in it from a, if you're dealing with a track sense. You know, I think that that's, that's something that we are really working hard to try and make sure that we factor into our sort of coaching decisions and co- uh, competition practices and structures and things to try and keep these kids who are later developers engaged because you know, track and field can potentially not be, not be too fun. If you imagine if you went, you were doing sport, and you just got smashed every week and you know, the, 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 level, the, the playing field is just not level. And I think in a sport like track and field, it's even more unlevel because you're on your own and you could be up against a real beast. So in environments where it weren't as well-funded, and like you said, the bells and whistles, like a, a wrist x-ray, yeah. what alternatives do people have out there and what are the potential issues with them alternatives? And yeah. we spoke about that as well. Yeah. So I mean, the, the challenge, you've got, you've got certain things that you do. I mean, we use a wrist x-ray, but, but what I've kind of moved towards doing now is not being dependent on any single metric or estimate. It's about building a picture of each individual from multiple points. So the options that you've really got available are uh, the Karmis Roach method, where you take parents' height, mother, father, biological parents, and the, the child's height, you get uh, a predicted adult height, and then you look at the athlete's current height as a percentage of that. You can use that classification then, and the percentage of adult height relates to whether they are pre, circle, or post, and depending on who you kind of look at in terms of their methodologies. I know some teams like Arsenal have developed their own sort of percentage ranges and uh, the, the original method has slightly different percentages, but I'm more familiar with the, the way that the guys at Arsenal do it. And I think it's, it's quite a nice way. So they look at pre being 85% of the predicted adult height or below. Approaching being 85 to 90% of predicted adult height. Circa PHV, then 90 to 95%, and post peak height velocity being 95% of predicted height and above. So that's, uh, that is the most broadly used now. Um, if you look at guys like Sean Cummings, and that is, is pretty much spread across the entire Premier League, is being used for biobanding and all those, all those great projects that are sort of out at the moment. Um, the issue is, is if you've got absent biological parents what what do you kind of do um you've obviously also got the Millwald equation that can be used where we're looking at height sitting height um and their their equation then looking at the ratio of torso to leg length to look at where they are in relation to phv uh, we've used that a lot at aspire when skeletal age data has been missing i've also looked at it just out of pure interest um, and what you can see is that it, it's quite inaccurate in our population, particularly. But I think it was originally done with a white Caucasian population. We're a Middle East, North African uh, population here, and I, they, you know, they mature at different rates. 
couldn't give you more specific than that, but it certainly <laughs> seems they mature a little bit earlier. And I think there's, there's there's great work out there by Melina and those guys that have have looked at that stuff in depth. If people want to dive into it, so those are those are kind of your different methods. So you've got a questionable reliability of the the metric with the Merlewald. Obviously, the challenge of being able to get that parental data. Um, in, in certain circumstances for us, it's very difficult. We, we can't really use the Karmis Roach. So our solution has been to use now the, the, the sort of where I've kind of settled with it, where the data is available is to use the predicted adult height from the, the bone scan, which seems, and having looked at that just yesterday even with, with our youngest group, um, that looks to be pretty good and, and how we're kind of how we're kind of judging that as i mentioned we're not dependent on a single metric so those quarterly measures of height and weight uh, if you do them consistently september january april june sort of time at the back end of your school year you can then make a comparison and take an actual growth rate for a 12-month period and see whether that ties up with with what you're seeing and if you know you know your numbers I mean, I, I know the numbers better for boys because I only work with boys at the moment. But if you look at some of uh, the Tanner research, early growth uh, growth papers, I think the average peak height velocity is 10.3 centimetres per year and the average peak weight velocity was 9 kilograms per year. And then the timing of, of those in relation to each other depends where you look. Some say it happens in time, some... Some say the the weight velocity hits a little bit later, and I've seen I see both cases all the time. It just depends on on the individual. So if you look at all those metrics, so if you've got uh, let's say a, per, a percentage of predicted adult height, and you have a growth, uh, a, let's say a, a circa predicted adult height range, let's say they're ninety three percent peak adult height, is their growth rate somewhere in the vicinity of ten point three centimeters a year? Is it a high growth rate? If it is, then you know you're probably looking at you know some some fairly good data, and then alongside that, we'll look at peak weight velocity. Uh, so how's the weight changing? Um, and that can start to that creates a, a bigger picture. Um, and then for us, in addition to that, obviously we we have our the actual skeletal age, the latest one, maybe 12 months old. So we can't necessarily rely on that completely. But we also have uh, fortunate to have biochemists on our team and, and we take some saliva testosterone markers as well. And from looking at that and, and sort of categorizing that with our pre-approaching circa and post, you can see that's also a pretty good indicator of where they sit in that range with some, some what seems to be some much clearer, some, some fairly clear differences between each of those groups, well, particularly pre versus approaching in circa and then those middle two categories against post. So all of that creates quite a nice detailed picture around each athlete. And then I think, you know, we're, we're really, we're about 12 months into the saliva testosterone collection um, and looking at how that's kind of evolving with athletes as they mature you know, I'm hoping that we can maybe use that from a from a training standpoint to be more precise about what sort of adaptation that we're we're going to get maybe in the in the weight room. Are they ready to respond and deal with that? And if if 
if they are, then we can maybe push on and, and get a, a bit more intense work done. If they're not, then we need to be realistic about what's going, what's going to happen. But also, you know, we've we've used that information to to look at some medical issues and nutritional supplementation with the medical team when those things aren't, you know, maybe growth isn't occurring how it should be. We see lower rates of growth than what we'd expect in maybe some of those phases, um, low testosterone levels. You know, we, we then speak to the medical team and, and look at interventions to, you know, maybe get get things on, on track. That was my next question, and you've kind of answered it a little bit there with the saliva stuff, but yeah, and I might be jumping ahead here because I know we've got we plan to maybe chat about this further down the line. But do you have anything? I know standardized makes it sound rigid and horrible, but reasonably standardized for when athletes fit into certain stages and what kind of interventions that you have for them, guys, and how things change training load wise, intensity wise, volume wise, etc. Uh, yeah, I mean, we have some, uh, we have some recommendations that we make to the, the coaches around those, those areas. Um, you know, we talk about how they, how they, how they may respond to training. You know, we're particularly keen to highlight those guys that are under high conditions of, of growth, that the growth rates are particularly high. We want to be able to make sure that the the coaches are aware of them um so the guys that are pre-phv they're likely to recover faster not you know they we don't want to expose them maybe to such high eccentric loads in in plyometric training we're looking at more low amplitude type plyometrics getting them strong against their body weight and earning the right to progress to to working with their you know, with any kind of external load. Um, the circa guys, we're really, really paying attention to their technical competency in those movements. And if when those rapid periods of growth occur, there's a drop in movement competency, then maybe we have to go back to basics and, you know, unload the bars and, and get some basic control ranges of movement established. Uh, in certain exercises, but that doesn't mean that we won't continue to push on exercises that do look good. Um, you know, we had a we had a we've got a high jumper now. He's he's grown something like twenty seven centimeters in two and a half years, or something ridiculous. <laughs> uh, we went through a phase with him where, when he was circa PHV, that Osgood was a real issue, but we still managed to we found some ranges of the squat. And, and sort of trap bar deadlift that he was pain free. So we just trap barred from blocks, kept him strong. He could still hit certain positions without pain. So we just worked where we could to work to round the issue rather than withdrawing things completely. Although we did have to manage a lot more around the impact for plyometric uh, type activities and, and remove some of that, that stimulus completely and, and basically keep him in a position where he could practice jumping, but not as frequently as as maybe the coaches or, or he would have liked. And then going back to basics with some basic balance, coordination type activities where he's learning to regain control of his uh, of his new limbs and and sort of trunk length. And you know something that we've seen with those guys is that 
you know, he, he he's a good example in that in terms of this is a guy who, you know, he hit all our basic body weight strength markers. Um, you know, could hold a plank for a couple of minutes in line with sort of Dan Baker's body weight strength testing system. And then we get to the end of grade nine and he's grown a load. We put him in a plank and he's shaking all over the place within 20 seconds. And we're like, we tick that box. But of course it's, you know, the, his whole, he's got a whole new length of levers to, uh, to try and stabilize and, and work with. So we kind of have to go back and revisit some of those basic things and keep checking that those capacities are there. And then obviously the post PHV guys, you know, these are, these are now guys that maybe do need a little bit more recovery. You know, these are guys that can really put out and some of these boys in track and field, like I was saying, you know, we've got kids that can hit in the region of 10 meters per second at 14 to 15 and put out 80 Watts per kilo in a, in a counter movement jump, really reactive kids that have got the ping. They can cope with, you know, more advanced forms of plyometrics, but they also, you know, because of changes within energy system, the way that they, they produce, they produce energy, um, you know, and, and use these higher outputs, they have to be given the time to recover and they can't maybe have that sort of frequency of some of the training that, the less mature guys do because the younger guys just don't have the output and they don't fatigue in the in the same way mm. nice mate i feel for that guy as well serious growth was an issue for me <laughs> i remember going on a holiday i remember going on a holiday one summer i went to cornwall and I'm, I'm thinking back i must have been growing at a serious rate i just slept for the whole two weeks we had rent a camper van and i was just not having it at all i was absolutely yeah written off anyway um ltad pathways yeah let's have a little chat around how that evolves um how that how that pathway evolves for you guys what it looks like in terms of the not yeah i suppose we'll go into uh the detail of kind of what you're doing from a day-to-day on a day-to-day basis with each phase of that of that pathway as well yeah so i think there's you know the way i think about um, the LTAD pathways, you know, read a lot of, read and listened to a lot of, of Calvin Giles' work. And, you know, he talks about an LTAD pathway being a progressive training curriculum that transports a young athlete to the point where they're an elite athlete. And I, I think that's, that's how I try to think about it. And then, you know, within those different phases, you think about the, the different age brackets. Now, typically my work has been 11 through to, early 20s when they transition to you know college elite teams or, or or whatever and there's a younger group beneath that where you know I'm, I'm maybe beyond working with my own kids and, and doing sport with them my, my experience is a little bit less experience but I think you know the the Qatar athlete development model they've it's called the Kunri Adi which means be an athlete they've they've set out some really nice they've done some really nice work with some guys from aspire and and some experts from around the world you know and the the first the first phase within that is play and exploration and i really like that concept and i think that's you know a concept that should be applied at home with your parents and your friends and your uh the rest of your family um and at school 
you know, within the way that PE curriculum is is shaped, you know, and I think someone who does a, a fantastic job with that type of play and exploration environment is one of your recent guests, you know, Jeremy Fresh, you know, and mm. the, yeah. the the way he uses those engaging environments for, for kids to learn a whole range of gross motor skills. Um, I don't think that can or should be just the only thing they do, but I think it's, a, you know, the way I see my kids engage with that type of activity, I think it's, I think it's really, really good. Uh, but I think in that, in in all of this, I think by by a lot of us, I think I'd probably be guilty of it in 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 my early days coaching as well. Is you know I think we overlook the role of the parents and and how much the parents have an impact on on what they develop like in that first phase. How engaged are they with their kids in terms of physical activity? Are they creating an environment at home where they will be active? you know, and they encourage them to be active. And I know that's not easy when people are working and, and things, but, you know, I think it's something for us to, to, con- for us to consider. Um, and from there, really, you know, if that play and exploration phase is zero to eight, then the next phase is really about participation and sampling lots of different activities, a range of sports um, across the year, and I think in that phase as well, the, you know, if kids are engaged in things like martial arts and gymnastics, things that develop different skills and physical qualities, I think that's, I think that's, that's really positive. And then where I kind of would think I come in is, you know, got kids after that who've participated hopefully in a range of things um, and, and where there's, we think I think about it in three stages: foundation, development, and performance. And that foundation stage of the pathway is really nailing down the basic physical qualities that we see within, you know, the youth physical development model. The key ones: strength, power, speed, and agility. And then how we kind of address that and that pathway, and how do we how do we create opportunities to develop those in an engage a way that is engaging for a kid that is 11 years old you know so games based activities that develop speed and agility chasing um fleeing activities dodging you know tag games and then you know jumping and landing through parkour for me is is really a popular a popular vehicle for myself and for for the kids that I work <laughs> with um actually at a place called bounce in uh, in doha just yesterday and it's got a huge parkour course so i was running around with the kids and jumping and swinging on all the bars there so it's you know that and just seeing how they engage in that environment just uh, and the all the different movements that you see coming out just from the environment that's there you know, jumping and landing from different places um we try and i've always tried to set up uh, movement matrixes or uh progressive levels within things like strength work and encourage the kids to kind of level up through different levels of squat push lunge hinge pull brace so that they you know some they can see it on your website as well isn't it from the yeah yeah, yeah, as well. yeah, yeah some of it is yeah some of it's there so you can kind of go through yeah just different progressions that incorporate more complex movements uh, different tempos before really adding a load as we would look to do then as we sort of progress into the development phase. 
But another consideration, again, from that sort of PE teaching influence is that those foundation sessions would typically be shorter sessions and multilateral in terms of it might start with a ramp warm-up. There might then be a speed and agility game that has a specific movement pattern of focus. Maybe it's a, a lateral-based movement game. Some jumping and landing activities that maybe support that, some lateral jumps, hops, leaps, that sort of thing, and then some bodyweight strength work. So there's smaller segments of each of those things, but they're getting exposed to them all the time. And then sometimes that has to be adapted based on facilities and things that are available. But those shorter periods of work allow you to get some really quality work done, but not so long that the kids lose their focus and attention they stay engaged and people always say oh, i just find kids get really bored with strength work well yeah if you spend 60 minutes doing strength work they're going to get really bored with it Not but if, if yeah. you compress that down into 20 minutes you know to do two to three sets of 10 repetitions on four or five exercises that are like your bang for buck exercises I've always found that kids are really engaged with that type of work, particularly when they've got a little bit of autonomy and control with something like a progressive grid that they can see where they're going to move on to next if they complete that level. You know, almost a bit of gamification type thought process around that. And then the development stage is 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 really a, a key phase for me because this phase, if you're looking at sort of 13 to 15 year olds, is where PHV occurs. You've got to have a little bit more eye on what's happening. Um, I say thirteen to fifteen for the for the boys primarily, um, and then you're looking at trying in that phase to develop relative strength and power qualities. You've set up all the movement qualities you want in the foundation phase, the technical competency, and then if that's if you've maintained that going into development, then you can start to load those movement patterns, and that for me is sort of a two two to three year process then of sort of progressive resistance exercise and loading um as we as we move through that 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 time but it's also not just being solely focused on that still working on speed and agility as you know as we've talked about a lot the the limb lengths are changing bodies very different huge shifts in weight they have to learn to re-control that in those locomotive movement skills change of direction tasks jumping landing uh, they've got all the. They've got to relearn that. So we, that phase can be very much regression in those elements and and revisiting the basics. And then as as you kind of come through that with certain kids, you know you can you can start to build towards more game specific scenarios and and situations, open reactive agility tasks. Um, but a lot of the time you're you're kind of still dealing with a multi sport athlete in that phase they might be playing th three or four different sports across the year so you don't not necessarily specializing too much in those in those game specific components you're still trying to cover a rounded you know syllabus of movements that, that enable them to really at some point then specialize wherever that may be and you know we've seen kids that have come through as hockey players in the beginning and ended up as rugby players or you know, uh, we had another hockey girl who's now sort of national level in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So these these skills nice. that kind of move, they, they don't always end up where you where you or they think they're going to. And then after that, you know, if we've we've hit some 
got them to a good level physically and you know technically they've progressed in their sport the performance phase then is really a much more individualized affair um and you you're gonna have to work a lot more closely with the coaches so from our perspective at aspire at the performance level i mean i, I work with some really good really good guys i work with a guy called uh lee christopher ross jeffs there are sprint and ross jeffs there are our sprints coaches um and Paddy Mills from a from a strength and conditioning perspective within our our sprints and hurdles program, you know, and, and we spend a lot of time working together closely, looking at what do we need to do for each of those individual vigil athletes. You know, they still come out of that development phase with strengths and weaknesses that we need to build upon or or address. Um, but we've now got a specific task in mind. It's no longer a multi-sport, be prepared for everything. It's how do we make this kid the best track and field kid in Qatar or on the, on the world stage? And, and where do we kind of have to, to push, the, push the envelope? Or if you're not working in track and field and you're working in team sports, what are the positional requirements of, of that athlete? And, you know, often I find working in those pathways, if you reach out to the people that you're, trying to help develop these athletes, your academies and places, they'll generally be pretty open about what sort of levels you need to hit, whether that's fitness, speed, power, sort of qualities. You know, you can help them address that if your contact time particularly is is greater with the athlete if they're with you at a, in a school system. But essentially, your the needs analysis of the sport and the individual become really key. And obviously, there's, a, a, there's broader things to consider within that as well from a psychological and nutrition perspective. Uh, if you've got those practitioners around you to 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 really optimise the development and performance at that phase, well, that kind of summarises. Yeah, nice mate. Like all no, the, from a, a a sort of early early years through to you know where we're ideally handed handing them off to a high performance environment. Mm-hmm. So I want to I want to make sure we get in two more things before I yep. let you go, because I, I want to, I realize that there's so much we could cover. There's going to be a part two coming up. So that's fine. <laughs> we'll line that up. I've lined that up already. It's in the diary. We're done. Okay. Um, but two things I want to cover in this is firstly, the questions that a couple of people had asked via Twitter. And this last, but certainly not least was the child champion. Sure. So we'll do the questions first. If that's all right. Just before sure. I, I let you go over the next uh, 10 minutes. So one question came in about how to best approach, and we probably haven't discussed this in so much detail, but uh, how best to approach LTAD for the uh, program for three to 11-year-olds? Yeah. Enjoy. (laughs) (laughs) As I said, this is definitely, you know, one, it's a really broad age range. And if you look at the development of those kids in, in that age, you know, there, there's so many differences in terms of, um, I'd need to revisit it to, to talk about it in detail, but I was reading sort of I, some IAAF guidelines for track and field with how you work with, with kids, but it's things like the speed at which they can track an object develops rapidly around, you know, maybe six or seven and, their general coordination and balance there you know they're very different at three or four five where the world essentially revolves around them and they don't want to share anything you know you've got lots of different things which i think 
you know, a, a primary PE teacher would be in a much better position to kind of maybe advise around around how to deal with that. But I think, you know, from my experience as a parent, I could maybe just give a couple of examples of what I've done with my kids, you know, and how how I find that stolen from good PE teachers that work with that that kind of age group. And, you know, I think it is about exploration and play and constraints versus explicit coaching and instruction. If I try and teach my six-year-old how to hit a forehand tennis shot it, and use you know, a normal tennis ball, it's just, it's just not going to happen. It's about looking at that and finding ways for them to practice these fundamental movement skills, striking, catching, throwing, kicking, in a way that is appropriate to them at that stage of, of development. So one of the games my kids love um, particularly when it's 50 degrees outside in Qatar and we can't go anywhere in the summer. My wife hates it, but I'll, I'll play uh, balloon tennis with them in the living room and they've got an actual tennis racket and they've got, you know, we'll set up a little net across the... the, the Coffee table. The, the, yeah, <laughs> I can't what we use last time, basically a table, yeah. But, you know, and I noticed something as I was sort of playing the game with them. So I actually went to the decathlon just round from us and I bought some sponge balls and I was throwing the youngest one, the sponge ball, and he just, he just couldn't hit it. And, you know, the ball would, he'd, he'd basically be stand and swing at it. So I thought, oh, I'll chuck him a balloon. So I've thrown him a ballooner. And of course, the speed of the balloon is much slower as it kind of floats. And all of a sudden, he's hitting this ball forehand and back, this balloon forehand and backhand. And he's running to do it but of course it's it's happening at a speed at which he can process it with so i think you just have to look for adaptations in that age group to that are appropriate to that kid and i'd also say you know having things like simple things would be make sure that every kid has a ball every kid has a racket i think you know one of one of my mentor from a pe teaching perspective if he if he sees like kids with inactivity, it like drives him insane, you know, and he, he that's the one who was observing my lessons and, and, and giving me a grilling for some kids stood in the cold for eight minutes. But, you know, all those kids should have a ball in hand. You know, the, the exposure then is so much higher. So I think working in that age group, high activity levels, lots of opportunity to practice, not a lot of coaching, talking, more finding ways to adapt away maybe from a sport to a more games-based session um, or different tasks. So Nick uh, Dill, who was my mentor, we were, we were chatting. And I'm going to try and get him to do a session on this at, at uh, Child to Champion. But he, so he, he sent me a video of him playing striking, a striking-based game. And it was basically built some uh, two castles out of... Uh, parkour blocks, essentially, gymnastics equipment. And they had to knock some a cone off the top of the castle with a tennis racket. And there was a 100 balls in the room or something. So these kids are just smacking sponge balls back and forward at this castle. But of course, by the end of the lesson, they've hit hundreds and hundreds of shots. You know, and if you if you'd take that same skill, a forehand shot, and you put those kids in front of a tennis net, how many do they hit before they get bored when they've just hit it into the net? 
Though I know from doing it with my six-year-old, he, he doesn't he doesn't engage very long if it's not working out. He's like, I want to go home. So that's what I would say: is think about those sorts of those sorts of ideas and and activity. As I say, activity levels high and lots of opportunities to practice skills. And look at Jeremy Fish Fritch's stuff as well. For sure, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah in terms of those fundamental movements, definitely those obstacle courses. Again, you we've uh, I've actually got a set of gymnastic rings hanging in my in my front room. Again, mo- much to my wife's. Uh, disapproval uh but we've got one of those pull-up bars wedged between an arch in our in our in our villa here and uh the gymnastic rings hang off that so my kids are are generally swinging and doing pull-ups and and those sorts of things and i think anything that you can do that kind of with that kind of stuff you know take them out encourage them to run and do parkour or you know jump in landing type stuff in any kind of environment is, is really positive Nice, mate. So we've got two more left, might be a little bit more simple. Um, so high training and match loads in schools and how kind of dealing with that? Well, I think it's a huge problem um, and there's not an easy solution to it because what you typically have are a number of parties around a young athlete who are operating on their own agenda, you know, whether that's school local clubs, academies, and particularly when you've got a talented athlete, all those people want that athlete to play for them. Um, and so it's, it's difficult and there's only so many days in the week that, you know, they have the time to, to play. That um, you know, we had scenarios when I was in the UK where athletes were playing three games a week with rugby across those, those different, um, those different organizations so that creates you know that that high high match load and the only really way i've seen to to solve it is to sit down and get all those stakeholders together or speak to each of those individual stakeholders and and try and create a picture of everything that's going on um and put the athlete at the center of that conversation considering their their well-being and what's best for them over what's best for each of those individual organizations, the school, the club, the academy. And I think when you when you think about the athlete and you think about, you know, what are their goals and what do they want to achieve, it then comes down to some conversations between, you know, what are probably the most valuable sessions for that player? Where should they be dedicating their time and, and where can they maybe cut back a bit of time? You know, so let's take an example with a kid who wants to be a professional rugby player. Then, you know, the priority is for him to attend academy sessions, his training sessions and the academy games. And then he needs some time to recover from those as well. So if he's playing a game on a Saturday for the academy and his club's ringing him up on a Sunday morning to go and have a run out as well, he's not going to be in the best physical condition although he may feel like he can um, and you know it's the knock-on effect of of that high frequency of playing in terms of if he picks up injuries um, you know can he is his training where it matters then affected so you know, if he can't go to the academy training he loses ground on the people that he's essentially competing with for contracts potentially 
then that, that that's not a great situation. But the problem is, is that a lot of players and their parents feel pressure from coaches or their peers to to play and and not let people down. Um, so there, there, it is a difficult situation for those for those people to manage that. And I think you know parents often fall into the trap of thinking more is more and oh it's all all good or there's a tradition within a family that they've always played for the club so they should continue to play to the club but ultimately that can that leads to issues and you know we had some situations where kids were playing 50 to 60 games of rugby in a year and eventually you know they they broke down with injuries and you know that affected their their development so I think it's as I said, it's really about communication between all those stakeholders. And I think things have improved um, in certain parts of of the country. Certainly in, in Gloucestershire, there seems to be, over the past few years, more of a agreement between schools and clubs. You know, certainly St Peter's worked really hard to kind of manage that in the last couple of years. When school games were, they'd share fixture lists early clubs could then plan accordingly and then the academy seasons uh, become a more condensed period between sort of, I think between, uh, you know, a few month window uh, that they, that they have an academy league. So I think things are being managed better and better. People are aware of them. Uh, but yeah, if you're in, in a situation now where you're trying to manage that in a, in a different environment, it, the communication is key. And, you know, it's not the case for every kid, but it, if you, you'll be able to identify which ones, you know, it's usually the, the most gifted and talented kids that get pulled from pillar to post to play for all these teams. Um, so it, it's a case of recognising who they are and starting that conversation early. And it's an education process for parents and an awareness thing for all the adults that are coaching them. I think if you can do that, then, you know, you're in a, a better place than than you are if no one's talking and that's that's where the problems tend to occur mm-hmm. nice mate yeah, last but, yeah absolutely last but not least uh pe being replaced with activities that develop all biomotor qualities as opposed to i'm guessing as opposed to traditional sport-based pe yeah um in my mind it shouldn't it shouldn't just be sport and it shouldn't just be you know, athletic development type sessions. It shouldn't be either. It should be both. Um, and I think blending everything through the curriculum should should address all aspects of development. You know, fundamental movement skills, sports specific movement skills, and those key physical qualities that we see identified in the youth physical development model. And I think the way it should be done is that that though those physical and skill-based objectives should be worked towards in every lesson. Every PE lesson could start with, you know, if you're, if you're the way we kind of did it at St. Peter's is we wouldn't necessarily have a, a structured ramp warm-up every session, but we'd have maybe games that had change of directions in a change of direction in that we could teach that had relevance to the technical skill or the technical component of the lesson. Uh, there would be times we would do a proper ramp style warmer with squat, push, pull, lunge, hinge, racing actions, or you know, calving dials, five in five, whichever 
you know version you 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 like i think a lot can be done with with those sessions i think they should try and continue to address all areas i think you know moving away from like i described in that question about three to 11 year olds what should you do i think it needs the the sports just need to be adapted at a level for those kids to really pick up those skills and you know that can come down to the number of people per side the types of skills the type of ball that you use it's adapting adapting the sport so it's appropriate and supporting physical development i think if you put all those all those things should be in together it's not an either or um scenario in my in my mind nice mate so we've got running a little bit short on time but child to champion yeah so three conferences this year yes where are they who've got speaking where can people book and get more information sure so we've got we've got one in the us at mike young's athletic new athletic lab facility in north carolina near raleigh a place called morrisville uh, we've then following that in at the end of may may 30th and 31st we're back at hartbury university in gloucestershire for the uk version and then three weeks later the 20th and 21st of june we're with Alex Natira and co at GWS Giants in Sydney. So they're the three, the three big events. Um, speakers coming together. Uh, there's, we've got Mike and Joe Eisenman and myself in, in the US with a couple more to be announced in the coming days. Uh, then in the UK, we've got a number of your former podcast guests. Uh, we've got Dan Baker coming over from Bali slash Australia. We've got uh, Luke Jenkinson, um, Simon Brearley, who works with uh, England Golf and from from Cranley School. Uh, Dr. Kevin Till, with uh, from Leeds Beckett, coming down to do some stuff on talent identification. Uh, my former boss and mentor Ed Archer will be there to deliver a program looking at the school's system that he's got with Crypt. Um, and then when we fly out to Australia, we've got really excited to have uh, Alex Natira involved, uh, Dr. Craig Harrison, uh, Ronell Hobson, Lachlan Wilmot, uh, Simon Harries, who's rehab specialist at um, at GWS with with Alex, and uh, I'll uh, I'll be presenting with those guys as well. I've probably missed someone in there. And I'm going to feel awful when I listen. To <laughs> well, people but, can people can go on the website, can't they? Yes, yeah. So if yeah. you jump on our website, which is Proformance dot pro or any of our sort of social media channels there's a lot a lot going out there at the moment in terms of things that are going on and people can grab tickets at the website or you know reach out to us on social media and we can uh, you know guide you the the right way if you're a bit lost on our site and you've been very very kind to give a discount code through through yes. myself uh which is 10 percent 10 percent off yeah. that's correct isn't it 10 percent off any of the normal tickets and we've obviously yeah through your sponsorship and support also got a pacey performance special ticket offer which gives you a, a full weekend ticket to any of the events plus all the videos from the 2019 conference and three months access to our 
online hub, which is basically a back, back catalogue of all our workshops and conference videos from the US and the UK over the past five years. So pretty good package. Nice, mate. So that, that discount code is PP10. Yes. That's right, isn't it? Yeah. So put that in on checkout for the normal ticket and 10% off. Yes. So I appreciate that. So what, what, no So problem. you've mentioned the website. Where can people follow you on social media? Uh, so Instagram, it's uh, if you want performance, it's at performance online. Or if you want me directly, it's uh, at James underscore Baker 8 and on Twitter at James Baker underscore eight. The other one wasn't available. Keep yeah. <laughs> trying to keep it as, as consistent as possible. So yeah, any yeah. of those channels, or if people want to drop me uh, an email, you can just uh, drop me an email at james at performance.pro. I know some people prefer that. So happy to reach out and chat. Um, and I, my email inbox is, is getting a bit uh, hammered at the moment. So I'll get Good. back people as, as quickly as I can. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. And like I say, we're already, there's, there's loads we haven't covered and I'd love to dive into. So we'll, we'll have to get a part two lined up. But thank you very much for coming on for uh, for a part one and look no forward problem. to seeing you in uh, at Harbury. Yes. Thank you very much for uh, the opportunity to, to get on. Absolutely. And, uh, Pleasure, mate. Been enjoyable to chat. Hopefully Good. people take something away from it. Absolutely. No doubt about that. Thanks, mate. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Really appreciate you tuning in and listening to James. Massive thanks to James for coming on and giving up his time in a busy schedule um, with a family at home and lots of work to do at Aspire. So also big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, I Measure You, Black Box Fitness and Kitman Labs for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run in its current form without them, guys. So uh, if you are in the market for any of their products, make sure you check them out. Got some cool guests coming up over the next couple of weeks, some really cool guests, um, some part twos, a couple of part ones. So make sure you press subscribe on your chosen podcast player and I will speak to you next week.